Hello and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where marginalized artists explore the future through the lens of the arts, humanities, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 2, Episode 8, Glitch Witchdicism, with Sarah Turner. Today we're going to hear from Sarah Turner. She's an artist, curator, and community organizer working in video, immersive installations, and electronic arts. She's the co-founder of the Mobile Projection Unit and the curator of Pink Noise. Hi, my name is Sarah Turner. I currently live in Portland, Oregon. I am an artist, curator, community builder. I run a couple different things. I run uh, Pink Noise Radio with my co-host DJ Mackby. That's on Freeform Portland FM. We do ambient noise by femme musicians in town all around healing. I run a project called Pink Noise, the experiential party, that is very similar in aesthetics in that it is mostly noise and ambient-based music with experiential installations that are all pink. So it's very chaotic but peaceful setting for people to enter into. I also make a lot of TV art, I call it. I'm sure people also call it that. But lots of installations with old CRT televisions, really looking at electricity and glitch and thinking of TV as a sculpture and an object and building that into different formations and spaces. Oh, I am also part of a collective called The Cult of Artists, and we make experiential lounge spaces for festivals and raves and just show off things for people to have a good time when they're feeling good. So I grew up moving around a lot. We lived in Maryland when I was born and then we lived in rural Illinois and then we lived in Williamsburg, Virginia and then Appalachia, Virginia. (laughs) And then I moved across the country by myself I think four times just back and forth from west coast to east coast and finally landed in Portland about four years ago but throughout that time I did a lot of weird stuff I think (laughs) I like yeah like I said I think like I always really wanted to get into art but I just was so discouraged from doing it Mm. I think especially where I grew up and my family background it just was more proper for me to get a real job and make money Mm -hmm. to save money for a house and get married and have a baby and all that kind of stuff and that just never felt right for me so I went to college and I went to grad school to try to get a good job Mm -hmm. stable job and I and I did I did I I 
worked I had many opportunities that I'm very thankful for to to be able to learn and and grow and and then I got a job working in the arts and nonprofits and then I realized that nonprofits ask a lot of you and are, are can be very tiring because they like to pay you in passion <laughs> which is great when you're like 22 and like you got a lot of passion and a lot of Bought a drive, um, and I did, and I and that was really fun. But I think that now, looking back on those experiences, things that I'm thinking about towards like creating a different economy around the arts is looking at a very different model. Mm-hmm. And so, how can you keep your practice and your community and your project sustainable in this capitalist society that we live in? Because ultimately, we do live within this society, and it can be a temporary reprieve to kind of build your own world outside of that but then it's not inclusive and and you spend more time building this infrastructure rather than the thing that you're trying to do which is trying to make art and share that with people now I'm in this new space where I'm kind of well I'm not working at a nonprofit currently and I'm exploring what it means to piece things together and to do freelance and and to do kind of odd jobs again and thinking about different models of sustainability. And and it's been funny. I've had a lot of weird inspiration. Um, Should we go with the Burning Man route? (laughs) Which is like, (laughs) which is to not be dependent at all on some kind of benevolent grant type of thing. To just have a job that you can make a lot of money and then use that money to do things that you want to do. So no strings attached type of work. But the thing is that you need a collective to pool money together to do that, which is great. I love love doing that. Or is it to create some kind of other for-profit endeavor that can then subsidize the money that you want to use to do art programming? Because that is one thing I've learned, that our programming does not pay for itself. You always need subsidized funding for it, which I'm sure that you're very aware of, too. Yes, unfortunately, I'm very familiar. (laughs) So, yeah, just thinking about how to tap into different markets of of money to, to be able to have a pool to take from to pay people what they're worth for their time and their efforts and materials, too. So, yeah, it's interesting looking around the country and and having that experience too, living in all these different places and seeing different models of how people are interacting with art and entertainment and how they're spending their money and and how much money they have. And Portland's about to boom with millionaires. I mean, it already is, but with all these like other companies going public, there's going to be a lot more money here. And so how do we connect those people with art in, in a way that's not the traditional like donor model because that does that doesn't work anymore at least for the things that I envision for the future of Portland and and so that's fun that's fun to think about it's a whole new territory understanding how to play the game but just find more interesting loopholes I think in my curatorial practice I like to bring people together who are of varying backgrounds and skills to create this multitude of learning environments for people to come together and share skills and experiences because it's not just about displaying art but about building a community around that to create the sustainable conversation and relationships in a particular space 
And how I like to think about that is from more of a holistic aspect of not just inviting someone because they're really cool and they make really cool art, but because they're genuinely a good person who are deeply invested in the same community that they are participating in. And so I kind of look at it as like this social programming aspect. It's That's a really gross word, but it's a way of like thinking about how you can provide this kind of container for people to grow in, in a particular way. What I like to do is come up with a theme and a topic and a space for people to congregate in to allow this growth for kind of a fourth space, which Ray Oldenburg wrote about the third space, which is this communal type space that people can come and go to. It's very similar thinking of a bar or a park or another kind of public space that there may be regulars who kind of regulate the codes in the space, but you can go in freely and talk with people and form new relationships and that's different from work or from home in that you do have flexibility of being comfortable and you're not regulated to particular rules but you still are presenting your public self to people but a fourth space I like to determine as a little bit more pointed in that you're meeting in public with other people but for a particular reason Mm -hmm. so it could be a church For example, you're all meeting for a religion that you share. And I sometimes think about art like that as like a church that you go to, kind of feeds you and gives you faith in life. (laughs) (laughs) Art, fourth space, is developing a particular community around a central issue. So the fourth space that I like to create is around new media art, providing tools and, and opportunities for people to present their work and and learn and grow together and so people can come from all different backgrounds and and that doesn't matter because what they're coming to talk about they're coming to learn about and coming to share is art and so through that commonality they can kind of shed their differences in order to kind of focus on this one thing together and then through that through their negotiations of both participating and presenting and learning they are then also creating deeper relationships that can be sustainable friendships and potential new collaborations and partnerships and in thinking towards the future I just want to create more communities where people have that solid bond together and can then grow collectively and have collective impact on their ideas and causes that they care about for the community because with more people and more resources you can do bigger things and that's important thinking about the future all of these installations and performances and videos are about setting intentions a lot of times I make them in accordance with like moon ritual cycles and particular times of the year and so it's setting an intention for creating a better world, I guess, if you want to get that big, but definitely providing something better for personal manifestation too. Usually my own, and then sometimes I lend that out for other people to experience as well. I've always kind of dabbled in art. I did a lot of dance, I did drawing, I did singing when I was younger, but I kind of came in through the back door as an artist, as like a big A artist, Mm -hmm. I think. 
because I did more like art administration and curatorial work where I was always in a very supportive role of artists. I always wanted to be near art, but I never thought that I had like the chops to really do it myself. And while I was at Open Signal, I noticed that every single thing that I did with media there, which if for those of you don't, that don't know, Open Signal is a public access TV station and a media center. And everything I did to prepare for anything, an exhibition, a class, a performance, an artist talk, I had to build infrastructure of electricity, mm-hmm. which just basically means like running an extension cord from a wall to a computer, a laptop projector, what have you. And I just started realizing how important that medium was. It's for that particular tool, I guess. But that it's so... It can be so fickle and so fleeting, too. And I really think that that metaphor is interesting. There's a weird, like, history of electricity and especially electromagneticism, which is very fun. I found this book during this residency I went to at Signal Culture in New York that was called A Boy's First for electricity or something and I read it. It was like very like first letter book or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just really interesting how we as humans have figured out how electricity works and how to hone it and we have advanced so far because of it. And and I primarily like working in new media and you literally can't do anything in new media without electricity. And so that's kind of how I started down the rabbit hole. And then I don't have great skills as like a filmmaker myself. I don't know how to use fancy cameras. I know how, I knew I immediately was drawn to experimental film because I was like, oh, I can just fuck something up and this is fun. And, and you can extrapolate different meanings from that. Yeah. And the best way I found things up was with these video processors which are all circuit-bent old video wares. So character generators or video mixers or VCRs even, like anything. People used to use these tools for live editing on TV. Um, And now we don't use those. We use things on our computer. But now people use those tools and circuit-bend them to just, like, up. You can use BPMC fluxus and like totally just glitch the hell out of like some video and it turns into this new beautiful thing that looks like old tracking lines but in beautiful patterns that you can control and manipulate yourself and again I think what's so interesting to me about that is that you're physically using your hands and hardware to manipulate this image that can seem uh, video is really weird it's very fleeting and very temporary But it seems so stable and real because it's an image, right? It looks like our reality. But in fact, it's just all these dots and pixels that are put together to make us think a certain way. It's definitely an optical illusion. And so with these different tools, you're able to take this electricity and move them and shape them in different ways that the tools did not originally allow you to do it. And to me, that's super punk to take someone else's footage and up to how you want to do it and like remix it but then also to reshape these tools to do something that they weren't necessarily intended for 
and to kind of reclaim that power as the tool maker too. So that's why I like kind of creating new works around electricity because it seems like such a dominated manufactured medium that's like so hard to access unless you have this like vast knowledge of physics and you know electricity too so a crt is a cathode ray television which is the big boxy tvs i'm sure a lot of us had them growing up as kids in the 90s. <laughs> they don't make them anymore. Obviously, they're like all flat screen TVs now. But what's unique about a CRT is that it has very different physical and chemical properties than a flat screen does now. And so it works really well to interact with older modes of media players. So VCRs, you know, DVD players, anything that has an RCA hookup, those three prongs of red, white, and yellow. With my practice, it, I prefer to use CRTs because they work really well with capturing electricity and glitches in electricity. So you can get that really kind of funky, screwed up looking stuff that happens to digital media. And I like using CRTs because they are like physically manipulating the electricity within the object rather than just kind of like a filter or an app that you can put on top of a video. And for me, that's kind of interesting in that it's this idea of looking at similarities and metaphysical properties in both our bodies and technology. And a lot of the work that I do with the CRTs is manipulating energy from our bodies to then display on the TVs themselves. So for example, like this one project I just made was called an aura reader or grounding aura reader, which I thought was pretty clever. I'm usually pretty bad at naming things, but (laughs) grounding in the sense that like grounding your body energy to the earth, but also grounding electricity from a technological object as well too. So with this one project, you stick your hands on a pyramid sensor, almost like your hands are in the formation of praying. And the sensor is hooked up to an oscillator that I built. And then the oscillator translates the completed circuit of your energy touching the sensor to the televisions and then displays back to you your energetic properties. So it's kind of an aura photograph, but it's live, like a moving, glitchy image, and it's very chaotic looking to represent the things that you need to heal inside of yourself. The electricity goes through the oscillator, through RCA cords, and then into the television monitor, so into like the video feed, and then it shows up in the black and white static, but it's all these different patterns depending on the energy that you are putting out. So when it is working, it'll show you dots on the screen, or it'll be like squiggly lines, or it'll be horizontal lines, or vertical lines. The participant is able to see their aura on the screen, and then I am there to assist them in reading it. 
and then have different devices for healing their aura after it too. So I took that to a Spaceness Festival up at the Southwestern in Washington, and I had uh, Amber Case and Crystal Cortez do sound healing sessions for people, individual sound healing sessions. So they would see their aura, we'd decipher kind of what they needed to get more grounded and then they would have an individual healing session where the sound would help to mitigate the chaos inside of them and then I also made additional healing cards that people could take away with them for prolonged healing afterwards which a lot of them were pretty funny. For squiggly lines people were pretty neurotic and had a lot of energy that had kind of loose ties just kind of evaporating into space. A way to ground them was to get deep moon energy, so I told them to take a walk to the beach by themselves. It's always good to be by yourself when you're trying to get grounded. Take off your shoes, stand in the sand, and then pop open a beer and stare at the moon. And with each sip as you stare at the moon, you kind of internalize this moonshine into yourself. That's kind of this kind of funny ritual to have this experience with this liquid and the moon and yourself to kind of just get back into your body. So a lot of the work that I do is semi-ritual practice, but also just kind of tongue-in-cheek and kind of silly too. Yeah, some of the other glitch aura archetypes were vertical columns. And for that, I kind of interpreted it as saying your energy is very strong and powerful and precise, which the vertical columns really do represent that. They're intense, kind of collected white energy on the screen with very little movement. And then I said, as a, a solid note, rising above the melody. However, it's possible that their energy could be stagnant, unchangeable, and immutable. So my prescription was to work on themselves in order to let new light in and to become flexible for... So for that one, <laughs> a lot of them included like little kind of silly things that represents electricity grounding too. So part of the instruction was to touch the first piece of metal that you see and feel the static leave your body. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also common in, in energy healing and auric healing is to imagine your chakra energy coming out of your root chakra and going deep into the earth and so it is a very similar kind of practice of mm. releasing static and releasing your own auric energy and then yeah dots and artifacts meant that your energy is ubiquitous when you enter a room people can feel it which in a lot of ways is great you know there's certain people that you just can feel coming yeah. into a space. But sometimes that can be really draining to be putting so much of your own energy out into the space. And it can also leave less room for others to share their energy with you too. And so sometimes you kind of miss smaller details from other friends. And so that one was really fun. So I told people to go down to the beach. And these were all kind of site-specific to being at the Southwestern Sea View. So mm -hmm. go to the beach, go alone without your phone, and then just count the stars and imagine each star you see is beaming a ray of light down to you. And in turn, you are beaming your energy back to it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was fun. a fun correlation with the dots, too. Like yeah. It definitely looks very star-like, too. So yeah, and it goes on and on. So wow. I, I like that practice of 
just being really aware of your energy and, and noticing how other tools that we have created can also incorporate weird metaphysical metaphors for that as well. I'm not alone in this. I have many friends and collaborators that also uh, participate in glitch witchism, but essentially it's using video and glitch in particular to create these new rituals around things mm. in in a very beautiful hypnotizing kind of way. I've been on this kick to do these altars recently. I did one this is going to be a whole series. I did one for the winter equinox, or sorry, winter solstice, the spring equinox, and then I'll do one for summer and autumn as well. They're all using televisions as kind of the primary communicative tool to show people how rituals can exist in a space on a loop. I really enjoy participatory theater or participatory art. Mm-hmm. It's definitely it's not socially engaged. It doesn't have that feel good kind of thing. In fact, I sometimes like to make people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> I guess it's the same as my curatorial practice, which is I like to provide space for people to do weird things. So, but with comfort. Mm-hmm. So, I'll create these television ritual sculptures that have a time-based ritual happening on the screens that seems kind of impersonal and passive to allow people to approach them in their own way. Mm -hmm. But as they stand near the altar, the ritual will become more clear. They'll see different movements and different objects being used that are on the screen and being acted upon. And then those objects are also on the altar itself in real life with people. Uh So it's a tool of showing them how to use the different objects themselves, and then they can participate with this kind of like ghostly, headless character who is walking them through this ritual. And so they can participate in it in as deep a level as they want to. With the winter solstice one, I found a ritual for the winter solitaire witch which is an independent singular witch can do this spell to help them get through the winter season. And so in the directions for this particular spell, it told you to gather candles, smoke of some kind, so incense, bowl of water. Yeah, just different colors, specific colors of candles. So red is an important Christmas color, Mm -hmm. or excuse me, winter solstice color. There's silver, there's gold. And so I went searching for these on the internet, found footage of all these different objects, and I did, but then I was like, these feel like very much of the creator, so then I put them through the different glitch machines to cleanse them, and then put them on the screen to then represent these different objects that would be placed in a regular ritual space. It was this installation that people could go and experience the spell for themselves, and also it could put the ritual in the entire space itself so that it was manifesting it for everyone just by being there. And then for the spring equinox altar, I created my own spell, which was... A, so the spring equinox is all about shedding the darkness and allowing room for growth and bloom. 
And so I created four steps of ritual, which was to cleanse yourself in the space by lighting some incense on the screen, then lit a candle and turned on a baby TV monitor on the screen (laughs) to allow light into your space to kind of brush out all that darkness that was in there. And then made an elixir that you could drink to wash away any remaining negativity from the winter before and then eat a strawberry to then plant the seeds for blooming of love and so then all those objects were also represented outside too so it's fun you know people often look at art like something they can't touch and so when they approach the altar and there were strawberries there they assume that they weren't supposed to touch them or eat them so I had to kind of like gently guide people and be like please eat a strawberry this will help complete the spell you know (laughs) so and so we've been looking at that some more just through different collaborations that I've had I just worked with Devin Fabriello and Sage Fisher and my good friend Alexis Rittenhouse on a video for Dolphin Midwives where we kind of extrapolated this idea of glitchwitchism in more creating this narrative for a song off of the Dolphin Midwife's new album called Flux, where it's these characters who are visited by this kind of ominous creature who takes them into Sage's altar layer and instructs them to do all these kind of ritual techniques to then free her from this altar cave. And so a lot of the footage is just of, of them doing these made-up rituals that are just kind of silly and strange but have similar aesthetics and movements to things that you might find in more of a traditional spell casting. Art is really weird and it can be anything and everything and I think oftentimes the loudest stories that we hear from our computers and art allows another channel for distribution to hear from other people who don't necessarily have those tools to access to share their story so loud so and that's what's important is like being able to share your story to create empathy in the world and more understanding and it's a great way of allowing us to visualize and celebrate and just be excited about like other people's voices too. How do you be an artist? I think the first thing is that you just say you're an artist. I think you just have to say it because I think for me I was always very intimidated by like well I can't say I'm an artist I didn't go to school for it like my art's not that good like And that held me back from doing it, from practicing it, from, like, really engaging with it. And I can't really figure out when... I think it might have just been, like, the first time that I showed my work that I was... That someone was like, oh, yeah, Sarah's art, and, like, she's an artist, like, describing me to someone. And I was like, I guess I am. I guess this means I am. This act means that I am. And so then I just was like, okay, I'm going to embody this and do what an artist does and extrapolate from there. If you can find space to practice art, that'll, that'll let you just go wild.
having a studio is quite a luxury and I highly recommend it if it's possible. It's also really important just to like take the time to do it and to not feel ashamed about it either. I think that our culture like promotes so much about productivity and like any time that you do being productive you need to get paid for it which I agree to some extent but also as an adult there's just like very few times that we play anymore and for me art is very much about like playing and experimenting and practicing and and it's important just to take that time to do it and to prioritize that and not feel guilty about it yeah that's really important I've always thought that art is a communicative tool and For me, I think why I like experimental art is that it provides a conversation and an idea without hitting you over the head with it. It allows a lot of room to think things over and mull it over without a definitive answer, which I think is a really good thing for us to negotiate with. Obviously, there's a lot of like chaotic happening right now and I think we tend to fall to yes or no black and white us versus them kind of a thing and I think art can provide this nuance and gray area that can allow our brains to live in the dissatisfaction of not having the correct answer all the time. If you'd like to see more of Sarah's work, you can check out sarahsarahturnerturner.com. We're sold out of hats and mugs, but we still have some cute merch. We have 30 more canvas tote bags available for sale. You should get one. They're off-white, they have a cool pocket on the side for your pens or your water bottle, and the front of the tote has our official slogan, Keep Dreamin' and Schemin'. They're $20 each and can be found on our website, futureprairie.com. We're a nonprofit, so your purchase is tax-deductible. We have a live show coming up on the evening of Tuesday, April 21st, in celebration of Design Week. Find out more at designportland.org. Thank you to our production assistant and sound engineer, Matt Larimer, for his assistance in putting this episode together. As always, if you have any questions or feedback about the show, you can contact us through our site or reach out to us on social media at Future Prairie.